Hello, this is Talking to Titans, a new podcast from University College London, with me, Kathy Jean Grandy, UCL alumni, art historian, and conservation scientist. And me, Gudrun Moore, Professor of Molecular Genetics at the UCL's Institute of Child Health. We're opening up some much-needed conversations about the realities of carving out a successful career in academia as a woman. Over seven episodes, Goodren and myself will be quizzing, discussing with academics who have achieved incredible things in their careers. Over the past 50 years, there have been huge improvements to gender equality. But you know and we know there's still a lot of work to do. There are increasing numbers of women doing PhDs, holding lectureships and becoming professors. But there is still a large imbalance at the top. At UCL, 70% of our professors are men and only 30% women. So we want to interview some of those women and talk to them about how they got there. Joining us for this episode is Nick Brewer. Hi, Gudrun. Good to be with you. You're the Vice Provost International at UCL. Can you just explain exactly what your role is at the university? It means that I'm one of the team of six deputies to the Vice-Chancellor, President Provost, and I'm kind of uh, in charge of leading UCL's global engagement strategy, so it's all of its international activities. And I know UCL has an enormous number of international students, some of the biggest number-wise. We are. 150 countries? Uh, Something like Like that, that. way over 120. It fluctuates slightly from year to year, but something like that. So you started in UCL in 2014, but you've actually had an incredible career in diplomacy before coming to the university. Can you take us through a brief history of your roles in the civil service? Gosh. Well, um, I kind of joined the civil service for DARE. So I was uh, at university doing my PhD, and I thought I was going to be an academic when I grew up. And um, one of my professors said, have you ever thought about joining the Foreign Office? And I said, no. I'll cut the story short because essentially I got, I, I got back from meeting somebody he introduced me to. Went to the careers office, as you do at university, and the careers office said, oh, they won't take you. You're a woman. You know, you're a red brick university. And I thought, you know, I bet I bet, I bet, bet I can get in. And it was sort of a bloody-minded reaction. Um, so I got into the Foreign Office and then... Essentially, it was just one amazing, interesting job after another. So I thought about going back to academia lots of times. And then they'd say, do you want to go to Paris? Or how about Mexico or India? And I love variety and change. So I've had an amazing experience. But I've also done a couple of secondments outside the Foreign Office. So I've worked in the Home Civil Service in the Department of International Development. And then I worked at the Equality and Human Rights Commission. So I guess diplomacy, development and diversity are the three things that press my buttons. And of those stations, which one did you enjoy the most? Everything seemed to come together in South Africa because as head of mission, uh, as ambassador or high commissioner, you get that helicopter view. And I had a fantastic team uh, based across South Africa in five different locations from 10 different government departments. So I could be talking about international development one day. I could be talking about trade in the afternoon. The next day I could be working on an international security issue or lobbying the South African government on a um, UN Security Council resolution. The variety was just amazing. UCL has its own global strategy. Can you tell us a bit about what you're doing there? 
One of the uh, targets we have in UCL's Global Engagement Strategy is to increase the percentage of our undergraduates who get some experience overseas while they're undergraduates with us. It doesn't have to be a whole year away. It doesn't even have to be a whole term or semester. It could just be a a relatively short um, field trip, say. And provided it's well planned and it's carefully integrated in their education, you know, they can come back saying, it's changed my life. It's opened my eyes. It's transformative. You would really recommend that. Yeah, wouldn't absolutely. you? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's, there's neat correlation with um, students who've acquired that sort of experience are more employable, so it's kind of hard. But I think it's, 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 it's if you like, the soft skills. It opens yes. people's eyes to thinking about how do other people live. I know it's maybe not quite so fashionable now as it used to be, but I firmly believe in the concept of being a global citizen. We all share this planet. There isn't another one. And we need to work together. Female professors at UCL are in a, a minority... And it's good that we can look up to the top of the top of the university and see women there mm. in serious academic management jobs where they're looking at how the university's run and how students are treated. I really, really believe you can't be what you can't see. That's why I think I've got so many heroines. Okay. When I was younger, I guess I would think about it in, in career terms. Now most of my heroines are people who show a real understanding about how the world works in the sort of public sphere. I really admire individuals who have a really distinctive personality and they express themselves in a very authentic way. So Jacinda Ardern, mm-hmm. um, Michelle Obama, yeah. um, a, a, a whole host of them, hundreds of thousands, and, and lots of female friends of mine. This might be a little bit of a controversial question, but what are your thoughts on not having the traditional title of academic? It's a complicated one. Um, when I was thinking about coming back into the academy, I, I talked to, obviously, lots of people who spent their whole career in academia. And perhaps I was a little bit defensive because I'd heard somebody say, well, at least you've got a PhD so you understand the loneliness of research. And I swallowed hard and, <laughs> and, and, and thought about that one. And somebody else said to me, look, you've been working for 30 years um, as a diplomat. You learn about new cultures, you learn new languages, you learn to understand what makes a place tick, you analyse the situation, uh, you write reports on it, you make recommendations. You're in the brain business too. So I just don't see that huge distinction. And diversity teams have to be made of different types of people. Exactly. Uh, And I think that, I mean, I was quite shocked when I first came back to into the academy to find myself once again occasionally in a meeting that was only men and me. Now that doesn't happen at UCL now. I think we have made big strides in the last five years amongst the gender diversity of the top team mm-hmm. and that is really, really welcome and it means you do have different kinds of voices at the at the table. We still haven't cracked it where ethnicity is concerned and I mm-hmm. think that's the next mm-hmm. big Right. It's big frontier. And power. I mean, you understand power and the structure of power, don't you? I mean, diplomacy. And you're, in your diplomatic life, you encounter that, I'm sure. In a sense, I spent 30 years studying to understand not only the formal power structures, but the informal power structures. And so things like learning how to read the room, learning who at a meeting... Which you taught me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was there to learn these things. Well, you, you know, you, you, uh, <laughs> and universities have, I mean, they have the overt um, management structure, but actually all of the informal power structures revolve around very powerful, very capable individual professors who are often 
male. Yeah. And uh, understanding how that acts as a kind of big gatekeeping role, uh, role there for the beginning of somebody's career. That's where the academic power structures lie. And you have to understand that. What would you advise young women going into these uh, situations to do? I mean, find allies, build your support network, and look around um, for those who have managed to find their way through the paths that you are trying to navigate. Ask for advice, ask for help. Uh, I would definitely do that. And the other thing I think I would advise, uh, which I didn't do myself, but looking back, I can see I had this this um, this help. You can ask somebody to, for advice. You can ask somebody to mentor you, which means will somebody talk with you about things you're struggling with? Can they? Can mm-hmm. you, will they tell you about how they navigated those particular obstacles? You can't, I believe, ask somebody to sponsor you. Right. Because the big difference, the sponsor talks about you when you're not in the room. Have you thought about Gudrun for that job? She'd yes. be fantastic. Yeah. And often Gudrun might not even know this is going on, but she must have impressed the person who's saying that with her potential or how much she's delivering and I think most successful careers people have had sponsors and I know I have but I often didn't know it at the time I I know now because I can look back but (laughs) I didn't know at the time how how would you find a mentor for instance Uh, well mentors are much more straightforward Mm -hmm. because you can either join a scheme and UCL has some of those or you can simply say to somebody you admire would you have time to have a cup of coffee with me once a term Mm -hmm. Um, so you keep the ask quite small but both sides have to recognise that it's going on and appreciate it because you're giving somebody your time. Yes, absolutely. Well, we, we co-mentor. Yeah, yeah, I think I co-mentor. Yeah. Technically, what are your thoughts about women adopting traditionally male behaviours to gain respect? That is tricky because when I joined the Foreign Office back in the Dark Ages, <laughs> um, you absolutely had to do some of that. So um, I learnt never ever to write, I feel... Um, always my assessment is or I judge. So you tone, you dial down on the feeling side of things. And I think too much. And you do ape ways of speaking, tone of speech, all of that sort of thing, in order kind of to fit in. Mm-hmm. But then you will always stand out because you're one of a minority. So you have to walk that tightrope all the time. And, you know, things like dress, dress codes. Yes, we There were always dress codes. Mm. And I think I rather, I rather slavishly followed them for a while. I didn't quite go down the totally navy route. But it took me quite a while to say, actually, I like bright colours. I yeah. want to wear orange or red. And, you know, you, you, you choose what you're comfortable with. What stage of your career was the toughest? I think in practical terms, the toughest was definitely when I had two children under three. Mm-hmm. And I was doing a job that required me on a bad week to go to Brussels four times. So I'd have to get up oh. really early and get back really late in order wow. to avoid staying overnight. And that was a real, that was a wrench every day to go to work. But actually the toughest one, I think it's not practical things and it's not policy questions or disagreements. It's when you're in a job that you don't feel fits with your values. Right. And perhaps it's, perhaps it's the job, perhaps it's some of the people you're working with and it's tough if they're senior to you. Mm-hmm. But feeling that your values are in tune with what you're doing is really important. How would you deal with that? If, or did you deal with that in, in that situation? kind of goes back to ask for help and look for allies. Um, you look for allies who 
approach the issues in the same way you do, who have your same value set. And they also, if you're doubting yourself, and let's face it, you know, women are really good at doubting themselves, say, yeah, you're right, I, I see what you see. So that was the first thing I did. Um, and then after a while, I concluded, actually, I need to move onto something else. So first call, look for allies. Second was perhaps look for something that's that's a better fit for you. Yeah. Doubting yourself, that's a really big issue, isn't it, for women? Why do you think that is? Are we brought up to think we're not good enough? I've thought about this. I mean, I must admit, if you'd asked me that question 10 or 15 years ago, and if you'd said, do you suffer from imposter syndrome, I'd have said no. It's only relatively more recently that I realised absolutely I do. I think most people do. I think women are more willing to admit it. I heard a story yesterday, and it's quite personal, so I won't go into it, of somebody who I had no idea he was massively doubting himself at the time, really uncomfortable in the situation he was in. I didn't see it, and I've sort of been beating myself up afterwards for, for, for missing it. I think it's because men just can't can't admit it. It's not, it's not okay the done do thing. So. No. no. I think maybe as women are able to, and we do, the men around us will see that the consequences are fine, person didn't lose their job or suddenly find they were demoted in some way and that they then too can say I don't always get things right. I'm finding this really hard and this isn't very easy. I had an example of that when I was in South Africa and I'd actually applied for another job even though I didn't want to leave South Africa and I didn't get it and I was very disappointed and I I told my senior team about this and one of them, a man in one of these other government departments who I hadn't previously got on very well with he came up to me and he said I think that was really brave of you to tell us I really admire you for it right and my mouth almost fell open well and after that our relationship was transformed so sometimes sharing something that didn't go well for you can be a real a real breakthrough so in demanding jobs it's very important to let off steam it's important for absolutely everyone so a walk or a run um a hot bath with a good book mm-hmm. or finding somebody to laugh with. Yeah. I, think, I think that's the... Laughter is a that's, great that's, release, that's, isn't that's it? That's the best one. Yeah. I went for yeah. a walk yesterday with a friend and we laughed and laughed. Mm. And it was... I, I felt like I'd had a holiday. Mm-hmm. Well, mental health. One of my New Year's resolutions is if you see somebody clearly upset, don't walk past. Yes. Stop. And the stigma. Yes. yes you yes, still need to break yeah. down the stigma that it's okay to go... To, to these centres to and to talk to somebody yeah. or, or pick the... Yeah. It's by a phone line to start with. Yeah. yeah. You just pick it up and talk to someone. Yeah. yeah. With your global hat on, what do you think the biggest issues we face, the global community faces as we move forward, besides some of the ones we've spoken about? Are there other ones? Well, it's how we live with each other and how we treat each other and how we recognise that uh, working together, whether it's through the UN whether it's through regional groupings, is absolutely essential. And we can start within the university. Yes. We can use that yeah. as our, you yeah. Know, yeah. our starting base. Yeah. Everybody can be kind to somebody they see who's upset. Yeah. One of the quotes I love is from um, Desmond Tutu. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, do the little bits of kindness you can where you are. It's those little bits of kindness added up across the world that make the difference. That scatter across yeah. the world. Yes. Or like Eleanor yeah. Roosevelt, you know, human rights start at home. Nicola, thank you so very much for joining us. Great pleasure. (laughs) Thank you. What I thought was really fascinating is what she made a comment about strategy 
And I think she's very strategic. I think being a diplomat, you have to be. But she's taken that wonderful ability into her new role at UCL. What did you think, Goodwin? She wants to really change things, you know, and make things better for the the global perspective at at UCL. And I think she did that in her other jobs. And values are very important to her. Uh, her moral, yes, that was, her, that was her moral compass. She her has moral, a real comp- moral compass, and I think that yeah. if we all had a better moral compass, we would probably have a much better, a better world, a, and a better well, it'd be simpler than that, yeah. a slightly better working environment. You yes. know, I mean, the other thing I think that stood out for me about Nicola is she came from a very, I think, academic environment, being a diplomat, where she had to make decisions quickly. Um, and speak to the world about issues on behalf of the country and clearly did it extremely well. And then she she walks into, you know, a very high-profile university in central London, UCL, and takes a top job. And there are a lot of men there, and they would be doing their research extremely brilliantly internationally for a very long time, and she was trying to help them. And I think that she said she doesn't like being called an administrator, and she certainly isn't, and I call her an academic. Thank you very much indeed for joining us in this episode of Talking to Titans. In the next episode, we'll be speaking to Stella Bruzzi, Dean of Arts and Humanities. For more information, please go to www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash UCL dash minds forward slash titans. If you like this episode, leave us a review in your podcast app, share it with your friends and tweet at UCL with the hashtag talking to titans. The series was a Whistledown production. UCL Minds brings together the knowledge, insights and ideas of our community through a wide range of events and activities that are open to everyone.